Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we have with us Leslie Danks-Burke. She's a lawyer and public advocate and founder and president of Trailblazers PAC. She's here to help us make sense of the current political environment, its impact on the current political apparatus, and the direction of grassroots campaigns going forward. Welcome aboard, Leslie. Thanks very much. So tell us a little bit about how you got into politics, and maybe as a preamble to that, a little bit about your work background. So I'm an attorney by training and profession, although I'm not practicing law anymore. But I think that my interest in politics goes way back to when I was a little kid. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I remember my dad hauling me up and down the city streets in my little red wagon, and and he would be delivering campaign literature for whoever the candidate was at that point. And my job in the wagon was to sort campaign literature and have the packet ready for him by the time he got to the next house. And so when I was growing up as a kid, it was always clear in our house that you participated in local politics by going door to door. Uh, And I think that I've just now brought that into my adult life by starting this organization focused on front porch politics. So you're located in upstate New York. Maybe tell us a little bit about the political climate up in that neck of the woods. Right. We're based in Horseheads, New York, which is right on the New York-Pennsylvania border. And the political climate here is sort of a microcosm of America generally. You know, of course, in New York State, we have New York City that is predominantly liberal. And then the further west you move becomes more conservative. Where I am in Horseheads, New York, right on the border of the twin tiers of New York and Pennsylvania, It is very much counties that President Trump won in 2016, uh, although in years past, President Obama also won these counties. So so it's an interesting bellwether, I think, area for what's going on in America politically. And you have some on-the-ground experience running as a candidate. What was that like? I do. I was a candidate in 2016 for New York State Senate, and it was an interesting race to run in 2016 because you saw this evolution in the political climate happening. What what I noticed happening over the course of that campaign was that more and more people were getting engaged in politics who hadn't been engaged in years. And, you know, obviously now President Trump, his campaign rallies would bring people to the fore who had not participated in politics in perhaps a long time. There were people joining the conversation on the right. And then Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders was at the same time conducting very large rallies with a lot of folks on the left who were interested in taking their democracy back. So my experience as a candidate in 2016 was watching the real popularization of politics again, watching more and more people both on the right and the left saying, we want to be participants in politics again. And as you went through that process and you were sort of charting your own territory on an issue-by-issue basis, as tends to happen in local elections, how did that manifest itself as you were defining your own brand and your own political identity against two pretty different cross-currents there? It was enormously interesting. I am a Democrat, and so I was running as a Democrat against an incumbent Republican. And that said, my real message was to the voters of my district that you know, we need to take our republic back and and we need to be participants in the conversation again. There are a lot of folks in upstate New York who feel disenfranchised, who feel that, you know, the coasts, as it were, are not paying attention to them. And that message was loud and clear in 2016. And my message was that, you know, my Republican incumbent uh, was not listening to the voters and, and was not taking care of his own constituents. The way that 
played out in the mechanics of my campaign was that instead of financing my campaign through donations from outside my district, uh, I really focused very heavily on making sure that my campaign was paid for by my actual voters. And, you know, there's a problem that there's too much money in politics right now, but one of the real challenges of money in politics is that too often it comes from outside interests, and it doesn't come from the voters who are who are actually doing the electing of people. And we ended up outraising my opponent. Uh, we outraised actually any state Senate candidate running against an incumbent in, in 2016. But we did that with 85% of our dollars coming from inside the district, which is a very unusual way to run a campaign anymore. Very often campaigns are are funded by large packs or, or, you know, donations from corporations. And as you dial that forward to what you're doing with Trailblazers, having that type of participation on a financial basis, which is even more committed in many ways than on a vote basis, what are the benefits that you see that that indicates for the political system or at least for the candidate that's going that route? You know, it's interesting. Uh, now that I've started Trailblazers Pack and we've tried to take this message and this approach to campaigning into local races all across New York and Pennsylvania, uh, we we say to our candidates when we have our workshops that, yes, uh, you, you do actually have to go ask for donations to your campaign. You have to pay for those yard signs somehow. You have to pay for those ads in the penny saver or however you're going to get the word out somehow. Uh, but the dollars that you raise from inside your district are so much more powerful than the dollars you raise outside. Because if you get, you know, the fellow down the street who owns the Main Street Cafe to invest $50 in your race, that fellow might also put your flyers on his lunch counter, or he might also share the news, you know, at his church next time he's there with his buddy that that he's voting for you or investing in your campaign. Those dollars go a lot farther when they come from inside your district. And that's actually how it should be. It should be that the voters themselves are choosing their elected representatives. And, you know, Fraser, you said that in some ways it's harder to raise the dollars than raise the votes, or maybe it's a bigger ask. I think it emotionally feels that way to candidates sometimes, but let's think about it. Someone's vote is the most priceless thing they can give you. And it it really is a pretty significant ask to ask somebody to choose you as their elected representative. And so if you can ask someone to give you that very priceless gift of their vote, then it seems reasonable that you could also ask them to make a financial investment of, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever seems affordable to them in your campaign. But too often candidates will forego that opportunity to connect with their voters and make sure that they are holding themselves accountable to their voters and instead go to outside interests to finance their campaign. It's an easy way out, and it's just not as successful either. As we go through the website from Trailblazers Pack, it seems to be very nonpartisan and really more of a way to train and inculcate a culture of being a quality candidate as much as informing on particular issues. What are the things that you provide besides the fundraising advice? We have a full workshop of 
training that we give to candidates and supporters. So we, we have what we call modules. And, you know, people who are interested in having our workshops come and give a presentation can choose any number of the modules. One of them is on fundraising and, and on messaging and how your fundraising message should be integrally linked to your voter message. You should be saying the exact same thing to donors that you're saying to voters. You shouldn't say something different to the different groups. Uh, but then we also talk about getting out the vote. We talk about how to set up your campaign team. We have an entire module that's devoted to teaching people, you know, what sort of resources they're going to need to run a local race. And remember, the races that we're focused on are the races that actually voters are closest to. These are the local politicians who are your city council members or maybe your town board members or your village trustees. These are the people who are deciding whether potholes are being filled or whether schools are being funded or, you know, what your property taxes are going to be. And so, you know, having those races as the forefront and as as what we really should be paying attention to first as voting citizens is not uh, the way we usually think about it. And most people don't know how to run a local race. So in these modules, we're really teaching people from the bottom up what it is they need to do to run a local race campaign. And you're based in Horseheads, New York, and I assume the geography would follow certainly where you're located. What other areas of the region are you interested in? We are working all over New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, we had candidates in 2017 as far as the North Country. We had a, a couple of candidates in the Westchester and Dutchess County areas. Uh, we had them as far west as out toward Buffalo and Rochester. So we have candidates all over New York State. We're partially into Pennsylvania. We were across sort of the northern tier of Pennsylvania area. Uh, we are particularly interested in candidates who are running in places where there hasn't been a contested race recently. Uh, we're very interested in seeing voters have a choice again. And too often in these local races, you'll see one candidate or another just run over and over for re-election and nobody ever stands up and runs against that person. And, you know, that, that becomes a problem because a elected official is supposed to be held accountable by the voters at least once every term. And if nobody runs against that person, then you know, there's just not that accountability. So we're, we only endorse candidates who are running in races where there's an opposition, where there's actually two candidates in the race. Uh, and, and we only focus on races that are at the county level and below. So that's your county executive, town board, town council person, uh, local judges local city council people, mayors. At that level, what is the dialogue or the intersection between the candidate and the party, and, and how do you deal with that? You know, at the county executive level or the town council level, major national issues and concepts that may dominate party discussion probably don't have as much application to what they're going to be representing their constituents on, at least on those pothole types of issues. How do you prepare the candidate to deal with that? You know, it's really interesting what you're saying there, Fraser. It's it's a good point that those national conversations maybe don't come into play as much, but in some ways that means that the local political party has even more control uh, over what the decisions are as far as who is a candidate and, and who's going to be running. Uh, very often it's hard for people to even know that there's a local race 
coming up. It's hard to sort of break into the network and know that this is something you can run for. Uh, the decisions about who the candidate is going to be are sometimes made in back rooms. Uh, you know, several years out, the local political party will have a decision about what the line of succession is going to be. And the local voters don't don't really participate in that conversation. And it gets very much controlled by the political party. And that's a that's a problem you know, on all sides. That's not something that is a problem just of one political party or another. And that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to get more people focused on these local races and recognize that if you focus on local races, you're really focusing on the people, the decision makers who are closest to you and probably affect your life on a day-to-day basis. One of the things that I hear about, and I have dabbled in politics myself, having worked in it before I kind of went off into my career, is that quality candidates are scared off by the nicest way of putting it, a complicated process. Less nice might be a poor process and one designed to screen out good people. <laughs> how do you how do you get people to become excited about politics when really in the last 12 to 14 years there's been a, what would appear to me, empirically anyway, a real split that's developed between people who can have reasonable opinions on many things but just can't be in the same room on other ones. You're really talking. I I have a real concern with how polarized our political process has become and also how polarized it's perceived to be because actually when you get people together, you find more often than not that they have a lot in common. And yet through social media or through you know, advertising or, or through the national conversation, we have this perception that we're vastly different from one another. And you can really see that common ground in local politics. For one thing, if you're dealing with a local city council conversation, you're probably having to deal with somebody who lives maybe in your same block or maybe a few blocks away from you. Uh, it, just that physical geographic closeness means you got to figure out a way to get along a little bit better. And so you can, I think we are going to see this political polarization shift from the ground up. I think it's going to start at the local level if it changes at all, and I, I believe it can change, but I think that change is going to start at the local level and, and move up. I don't see the national conversation, the polarization of the national conversation uh, changing without a real demand for that from the grassroots. Well, we've come off an election which I would describe as a neutron bomb in terms of expectations with the election of President Trump. And I think his impact on what I would describe as the political industrial complex, people are still sorting through what that means, whether it's his disintermediation of media through Twitter, his lack of adherence to traditional political norms, either in terms of how he handles things in press conferences or the level of truth he sort of imparts on various statements. How do you digest all of that? Again, this is a national and international thing, but it has massive implications as it relates to people and their ability to deal with information and then ultimately the candidates that are trying to make their point. You know, again, my real focus is on the change that we can make locally within our own communities. And, you know, I'm reminded of the the famous quote that you should never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. <laughs> and I believe that that's a statement on how, uh, how movements happen and how change happens. If each of us is committed to 
forging connections and building relationships at the local level, then that that has exponential effects. And I I don't mind saying, you know, as someone who's been involved in politics for about 15 years, that this is a, it's a bummer of a time to be involved in politics. There's so much anger and antagonism out there, and it, it can feel demoralizing. But at the same time, I find that when I focus on local races and when I see the shifts that can happen almost overnight through just putting people together in a room to talk things out, I'm energized and optim- uh, optimistic about our future. And it's so nice to find places to feel optimistic now when it, when it does feel like the world has gotten so big and so unmanageable. One of the things that I think is interesting about Trump's election, whether any of us agrees with a lot of the policies that he has in place, the idea that someone can have massive political success against the traditional political constructs, to me, it signals an idea that there is a place for new ideas and maybe there's a chance for good ideas to flourish where maybe the traditional way of doing things was designed to thwart them. That absolutely makes sense to me. I think we are on the real cusp of change here, and I think there's an opportunity for some very good change. And like I said when we first started talking, that the number of people that I saw coming out in 2016 from all ends of the political spectrum uh, who were saying, I want to participate in politics again, I believe democracy needs to be about the people, regardless of what your position is on particular issues, my voice deserves to be heard. That's extraordinary. And that is is something to be encouraged, and it's something that I think we can build on. Democracy is messy. Uh, you know, democracy is about putting a whole lot of views together in a room and seeing whether you can get to consensus on anything. And the more we can do that together as a community, the further we're going to move forward. I think the biggest danger we have is allowing ourselves to believe that we can't progress, that we, that we simply can't find bridges across these divides. I believe we can find these bridges, and I think there's a lot of good people thinking about it right now. One of the demographic issues as it relates to upstate New York and western New York is what I would think of as a drain of people who are leaving for one reason or another and you know going to warmer states or what they would perceive to be better economic opportunity. How do you think about that in terms of the advice that you give the candidates that you support? It's a tremendous challenge. We are losing people in upstate New York, and, and the northern tier of Pennsylvania is facing the same challenge. It's the challenge that you see in rural communities all across the country, uh, that there just is not investment in rural schools, in rural education, in rural food programs, in rural housing, uh, to the extent that there is in other parts of of urban America. And that, I think, is a vast demographic shift that we're seeing happen across America. We've seen it happen over over the past 20 years, and it's leaving a lot of folks out, and it hasn't gone unnoticed. And I, I think it's really affected the political climate. So you can't ignore that as a candidate. You can't, you can't simply say, well, you know, it, it's going to all <laughs> turn around at some point in the future. You can't keep on making the same choice and expecting different outcomes. Uh, So what I advise candidates is make sure you recognize that and make sure you're talking clearly about whether uh, your particular political party's perspectives are actually going to help your constituents. Because if they're not, then you're going to have to stand aside of your political party, whichever one it is. Now, where 
where I am, the Republicans are in control, and Republicans uh, tend to hold most of the elected offices, the Assembly seats, the State Senate seats, and, you know, that, that's a challenge for people who are running on the Republican line for local office positions because they have to stand up to their Republican higher-ups and say, hey, you folks just aren't getting the job done for us. Uh, it's true for Democrats in other parts. And you've got to be able to run your own campaign and uh, stand up to your leadership if it isn't working for you. When people try to diagnose the various issues of the American political process, invariably the impact of money is, is sort of ground zero for everything that's wrong. But I had on Brian Sells a while back who is a civil rights lawyer who deals with voting laws. Do you notice at the local level gerrymandering or obstructionist voting laws that they get in the way of a solid political process, or is this something that really happens at more of the congressional or national level? No, it starts at the local level. It definitely starts at the local level, and and it works its way up. And in fact, when you talk about gerrymandered districts, uh, you see that very much playing out in, in various small cities all across America. You see it happening in towns and villages all across uh, New York and, and Pennsylvania. And that corruption problem, that backroom dealing, that, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours approach to local politics then percolates up. And that's how we end up with challenges like, uh, you know, New York State districting maps that make sure that Democrats always win in the city and, and downstate and Republicans always win in the North Country and in the far west of New York State. So, when you see that sort of collusion between political parties to keep a balance of power a particular way, that goes beyond any one political party. It, it is a system that is designed to prop its own self up, and we've got to change that from the bottom up. So getting back to the impact of money, because you can never quite get away from it, political action committees, at least my prejudice against them is such that they find an issue or a theme that they are active in supporting. When you get down to more specific lobbying interests where people are looking for a specific outcome or even a specific piece of legislation or you know a land deal or something like that, that can be a, a pernicious impact as well. When that hits the local level, how do you advise your clients to deal with that? It can be an extremely powerful lure, and it's something that can be ultimately negative for a community. I say that, and at the same time, I know I've got lobbyist friends who, at many times, part of their function is to help educate clients about certain issues that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get up to speed on and otherwise help direct a process that could use some additional guidance. Uh, what is your take on that, and how do you arm your candidates to deal with the lobbying industry and use it for what it's useful for and avoid it, the areas where it can be difficult? We advise our candidates to be as fully transparent as they possibly can, to go beyond what state law requires of them as candidates for office and to disclose everything. Uh, because the real challenge in politics, yes, it's money, but it's also the hidden nature of the money. It's that we don't know where the money is flowing from and to. And if a candidate is willing to go out there and divulge where every single donation to his or her campaign is coming from, which actually is not required by law, uh, then that allows them to, <laughs> to begin to shine a light on this problem and also to ask their opponent to, to be held accountable uh, for transparency as well. And it turns out to be a pretty powerful approach. And we've had some candidates come to our workshops who 
you know, are, are hesitant, understandably, and say, well, gosh, you know, why would I want to do more than law requires? The law only requires me to show these donations, and I don't have to divulge, you know, this donation from this political committee or that donation from that PAC or this donation under under a certain threshold. Uh, why would I want to put myself out there? Well, it's extraordinary the conversation that can happen when you do. Uh, for example, if you have Joe on Main Street, again, you know, the cafe owner who maybe would put your flyers out, and Joe's a Republican, but you're a Democrat running for office, and Joe, you know, doesn't normally give enough money to have his name be disclosed. If Joe's name is suddenly on your financial disclosures as a supporter of your campaign, then gosh, that's going to gain you some credibility in the community. And so it gets right back to this idea that local dollars are, are more powerful. How do you use social media for local candidates as they continue to sort of burgeon their brand and get more popular within their constituency? You know, social media is becoming so much more important, I think, because people are craving that closer connection, and we find it in our social media. We, you know, we have social media friends that we follow on a regular basis, and and we know what's going on with them. to the extent that you're able to use social media to connect with your voters directly and individually and, you know, through targeting, you certainly can, can do that and target down to the zip code and sometimes even down to the block. Uh, that's incredibly powerful. And President Trump obviously uh, has turned it into an art form, his ability to communicate with his followers through his social media. And he, he began that during his campaign, and he's continued that while in office. And I think that to the extent that that any candidate can do that, it it lends them an ability to connect and to communicate that people are really craving. To step back and maybe to reiterate a question I had before, how do you recruit candidates with transparency? The various sacrifices you have to make to be a part of the political process, it can be daunting to find those good people. What is part of your message to those folks who are interested in becoming a candidate? You know, it is really hard to find people to run for these local office positions. And that's a big part of the reason that so often uh, they go unopposed, that, you know, the same person just runs over and over for re-election and and keeps getting re-elected without opposition, is nobody really wants the job. Uh, And so it is tough to go into communities and, and say, hey, look, you know, you're really concerned about what's happening at the national level or you're really concerned about the direction that your tax dollars are going or whatever it is, but here you can make a real difference by running for village trustee. (laughs) And most people look at you blankly and think, oh my gosh, no way would I want to do that. Uh, I think there's also a sense that somehow local politics are more personal, that it's, it's harder to get angry with the guy down the block. Uh, than it is to get angry with your congressman who you may never see in person. But isn't that kind of the point, is that we need to figure out how to get along with each other and figure out how to wrestle through some of these issues with the people that, that we really live and work closest to. So what we do is we uh, we go into communities and, and um, where we're invited, we participate in workshops, we get invitations from, you know, all over the place to come in and and put on a workshop. And we generally, once we get one of those invitations, try to recruit some other folks from different parts of the political spectrum to co-sponsor our workshop with 
whoever it is that's invited us there, uh, so that we can get people from sort of a cross-section of the community coming into the room together. And very often the folks who come to our workshops say, oh, well, I would never run for office, but I'd be willing to help somebody else who is. And over the course of our four- or five-hour workshop, we try and get them around to the idea that, well, hey, maybe maybe they could do this too. Maybe this is something they could do as a, as a community advocate or as someone who's wanting to step up and participate. Terrific. 2018, what are the races you're working on and what are the other ones that you're interested in? Well, I am really excited about the March 20th village races that are coming up all over New York State here in just a couple of weeks. And, you know, the voter turnout is probably going to be very low for those. Uh, But again, those are elected officials who set your property taxes and who decide what the shape is of the roads that you're going to be driving on. Those Those are pretty important races all across Long Island and Westchester and all over upstate New York, uh, these March 20th village races. So we are, we are blazing ahead toward March 20th. And then after that, we're looking at the, the many, many county and town level races that will also be up along with congressional and state level races in 2018. Uh, although Trailblazers PAC doesn't do any endorsements or money in races above the county level. So this is where I get you to pull out your crystal ball and see what's going on. But you're close to the mood of the region that you're working in. Do you see a sea change that may happen as a reaction to the you know initial couple of years of the Trump presidency, either at the local races or at the congressional or higher? I think change generally takes a long time to occur. And I did not see the Trump election as you know, something tremendously anomalous. I think it was the logical output of about 20 years of electoral process that that we went through in the United States. And I think that we will now start seeing a shift back the other direction. But I don't believe that we will see a dramatic swing of the pendulum. We simply don't have a system that is designed for dramatic swings. I think it's very possible that the Democrats may, you know, take back the Senate or take back the House of Representatives, but I don't think that we would see it swing in in a really dramatic way, because that's just not how our system is designed to function. Our system has lots of checks and balances in it that keep those big swings from happening. Really cool. Leslie, first of all, I think you're doing a really cool thing to be able to help get people back into the political process. I notice amongst my friends and, and lots of other folks that the level of either disgust or just reticence to be involved with it is is at an all-time high. And to be able to make a good inroad in something that is a necessary part of our society, I think, is a really nice thing to do. How do we keep track of Trailblazers Pack, and how do we keep track of your exploits? Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. We are at trailblazerspack.com, and uh, we are so enthusiastic about the change that we see happening. And, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, that people feel demoralized and down. And, gosh, I'm right there with folks. A lot of the time you read the news headlines and, and you feel down about how much anger and animosity there is in the world. But then just take a minute and read those articles that are below the fold or or toward the back of the newspaper about the local elected officials and and changes that can happen on the local level, and it really gives you a sense of renewed optimism. Americans are a pretty hardy bunch. We have survived a lot in our history, and we're going to survive this political adolescence or whatever it is we're going through right now. We're going to survive that too, and I think we're going to come out stronger on the other side. Great stuff. Leslie, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Fraser.
You were just listening to Leslie Danks Burke, the founder and president of Trailblazers Pack. Thank you for listening to the Fraser Rice podcast. We will have more podcasts up shortly. Thanks again and have a great day.